Well, amen. Jesus is always the same. I'll tell you what he is. He's consistent, isn't he? Unlike many of us, we find ourselves often up and down a little bit, not him. He's always on his game. Well, I told you that I just might share a couple things with you tonight. Um, I think I have just a few minutes, so I think I'll do that. Um, Have you you ever had one of those times where you're just um, sitting and all of a sudden you just feel like you're getting sick? You just feel it coming on? Yeah, that's me tonight, right now. Just up here in the last 10 minutes, I can just feel it hitting me. So I hope that doesn't mean it's... I hope that means it's not getting worse, all right? So after the service, I'd love to shake all your hands, get a chance to greet and meet you. Uh, That'd be wonderful. I'd share everything I've got with you. No, I'm teasing. I don't know what it is. I I, I did a lot of speaking today already and stuff, so it just might be my voice and stuff, and you know how that goes. Uh, Who knows what it is? But anyway, you pray for me tonight so that I get through this, and maybe by the end of the service, I'll be perfectly fine. That's how it usually works for me, and we'll see how it goes. Maybe the devil's just messing with me, all right? So we'll see what we got here. A boy scout. He says to a scout leader, he says, Sir, is this snake poisonous? The scout leader says, No, that snake's not poisonous at all. So the boy picks up the snake, which bites him. The boy starts to spasm and foam at the mouth. All the other kids, they just look on in horror. The scout leader looks at him and says, But that snake is venomous. Poison is ingested and absorbed while venom is injected. Let's get it right next time, boys. (laughs) It's messed up, isn't it? All right. I tried to change my password to 14 days. The computer said it was too weak. You know, every single morning I get hit by the same bike. It's a vicious cycle. Come on, guys. You know, these are pretty good. Finally, let me end with this, okay? My wife asked me to pass her lip balm. I gave her super glue instead. She's still not talking to me. <clears throat> I, I thought that was pretty good. I got another one. I can't share it with you because you'd be mad at me. But anyway, <clears throat> the single said it was kind of rude and kind of nasty. Not bad like in nasty, nasty, but just it was about girlfriends, you know, and I don't want to share that one. Brother Don wants to hear it, though, doesn't he? <clears throat> How many want to hear about the girlfriend? Okay, here it is. Okay, you asked for it. I guess i got to share it now. <clears throat> you know, crazy ex-girlfriends are like a box of chocolates. They'll kill your dog. <laughs> you asked for it. I, I told you, you wouldn't like it. <clears throat> All right. Let's go ahead and take your Bible today. Turn over the book of Romans. We're going to begin a new series tonight. A series on dealing with sin. Dealing with sin. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And so take your Bible, look over at Romans chapter 6. We're going to get over there in just a moment. But a famous preacher once said that when a saved person begins to battle sin in his own life, he enters a combat so intense that it it makes World War II look like a Sunday school picnic. Now again, the truth is is that that may not be so clear to a new babe in Christ, to a new Christian, but as you grow in Christ, as you grow in experience, Living day to day, week to week, year to year, decade to decade, you're going to realize more and more the intense struggle that exists in the Christian life. As we begin this lesson, of course, it's important that we understand some things about our present condition as believers. And so I want to take just a moment and kind of 
set the stage, if you will, for this particular series dealing with sin. And so here we are, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 6 of the book of Romans is a power-packed chapter. And here in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we note these verses. It says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We just ask, Lord, you'd bless now. May you be with the service. And Lord, help uh, my voice to hold out. And Lord, just be with each and every one that's represented here tonight. Lord, we... It is no surprise, Lord, that Satan is fighting tonight. And Lord, as we deal with this particular issue, I'm certain that he's going to be fighting throughout these weeks to come. Lord, again, may you just put a hedge about me and a hedge about this congregation. And Lord, may you protect us even now, Father, from his onslaught. Lord, again, we know that his desire and his uh, longing is to, Father, destroy us and wreck and ruin our lives. And Lord, there's no better way that he does it than to get us to partake or involve ourselves in sinful acts, deeds, thoughts, and so forth. And so, Lord, help us to learn how to deal with sin. And Lord, may we just be encouraged, instructed, inspired, Father, to do all that we can to live our lives for you in a God, Christ honoring fashion. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Knowing this, that our old man, it says, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, but it goes on to say, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, as believers, our old man is crucified with Christ, according to the passage. And again, that's an important statement. Our old man, it says, is crucified with him. So what that means, literally, is that we're no longer bound by sin or its consequences. It means that we're no longer slaves to sin, nor are we helpless to it any longer. Sin needn't fuel our bodies. It needn't fuel our lives anymore. It used to be that it did fuel. It used to be that we couldn't help but sin. It was just the way it was before we were born again, that is. And even though the old man is dead, even though it says here he's crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're still living in this flesh. And although the old man is crucified, the body is alive and well. And it's for this reason that we are admonished in Romans again in chapter 6 in verses 12 and 13. He goes on to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So on one hand, it says here that our old man has been crucified. While on the other, we need to be diligent to resist the flesh and purposely yield our members or uh, our bodies, if you will, as instruments of righteousness. We're saved, we're forgiven, and we're accepted of God. But we still face a lifelong battle with sin and in this flesh that we live. So the old man is dead. Who and what we were is dead. That atomic person, that, that sin man, is dead in that sense. However, we have this old flesh that we still have to deal with. We still have this body that is certainly going to continue to raise its ugly head in our lives. 
We find this truth expressed in 1 John as well. Turn, if you would, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. First John chapter three, verse nine. The Bible says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. The believer is positionally perfect in the eyes of God. Because you're perfect in Christ's eyes, or in God's eyes. Because his seed, or that new man, is found to be without sin. See, you're a new creation, a new creature, I should say, the Bible says. It's an interesting phrase, and the fact is today is that when you trust Christ and receive the Lord, then His seed comes to move into you, remains in you. That new man is now there, and that new man is perfect. On the other hand, practically speaking, we're still prone to sin, though. Not from the new man, but according to 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what's happening here in the book of 1 John is John's pointing out that the new man does not sin and that as long as the believer, you and I as believers, yield to that new man, then we won't sin either. All of this kind of seems a little confusing. But let it suffice to say that we are basically battling, you could call it, two natures, if you will. Now, I'm hesitant to use the word nature because the Bible doesn't use it that way. But the fact is, is that in a sense, in a sense, that old nature died. That's the old man. But the problem is we still have the flesh. We still have this body. And what we're dealing with is the lust of the flesh. See, you don't have that, that, that driving force within called the old man anymore. He's dead. What you have is this old flesh. And what I have is this old flesh that is constantly wanting to be catered to and, and cared for. It's the flesh that we deal with now. See, the world can't help but sin. Those that are lost are going to sin because they're fueled by sin. You and I are no longer fueled by sin, but we can yield to the flesh. Romans 7:18, the Apostle Paul, he addresses this issue as well. Look, if you would, in Romans 7.18. He goes on to say here in Romans 7.18, For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Now notice, he says, for I know that in me, in me, that is in my flesh. Because I'm going to tell you something, if the Apostle Paul had been born again already, if he had received Christ as his Savior, then guess what? His old man is crucified. And within him, that new man is according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, without sin. So he has, in a sense, that new divine nature there. But he still has this old wicked, sinful flesh that he's facing and dealing with every day. So in a sense, he's got the divine nature now. He's got the flesh to deal with. And so now there's this battle that rages in his life. 
And if he's going to get victory over the flesh, he's going to have to yield to the Spirit. The new man. So the battle really is between the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh being physical, sinful, and in Adam's likeness, flesh. The Spirit, however, spiritual, perfect, and in God's image. That's the two factors that are at war here. The two factions that face off every day and every moment of your life. And mine. Look, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 and 20 through 22. <clears throat> Notice what it says here. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And that's kind of crazy. You've got to really get, a, get into this and understand what he's expressing and what he's really saying. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the life. Now he goes on to describe or explain this. He says, for as in Adam, a man, all die. Even so, in Christ, a man shall all be made alive. By the way, Christ was all man. He was all God, yes, I'm not going to argue that, but he was all man. It was a man that brought death. It was a man that brought life, though. And that's what the Bible's teaching us here. It's saying, again, since, uh, for since by man came death, Adam, by man, the Lord Jesus Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The fact is, Jesus Christ, or God, had to become flesh. He could not, we could not be saved except a man die on the cross. A perfect man. A sinless man. God-man. Again, thank God, though, that we see that this old flesh is really a real, I guess, uh, weight around our shoulders, so to speak. It really weighs us down in the Christian life. But thankfully, one day, we're going to receive a new body like unto His glorious body. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Philippians 3, verse 21. <clears throat> there we read about this body that we're going to receive one day. It says, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. One day, you and I are going to have a new body. This old vile body, this fleshly body, this sensual body, the one that we received as a result of the fall of Adam in that sense, and has been corrupted by sin, will one day be eradicated, be done with, com completely buried, gone, and a new body will rise up out. We'll have a new body, like unto His glorious body. If we could take a picture of Jesus Christ back there at the, in the... In the uh, at the tomb as he's rising from the dead, as we could see him talking to the ladies that went down there to bring spices, as we could watch him walk around through those 40 days as he, he shared the truths prior to being ascended, going back to be with the Father, we would see the very body that you and I will possess one day, a body like unto his glorious body. For the time being, however, there's a battle raging. And this series is designed to help us combat the flesh. 
that is determined to hang around and to raise its ugly head in our lives. And so we want to spend some time addressing this issue, dealing with sin. And so first of all, I want to ask the question, what is sin? What is sin? First of all, sin is breaking God's law. It's breaking God's law. Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea. They'd wandered into the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, they enter into the promised land. You know, it wouldn't be long till apostasy and idolatry kind of sunk its, its strong and sharp claws into the very fabric of that culture and that nation. The Israelite people, they had... I mean, God had meant for them, and He had intended for them to have this wonderful relationship with Him. Instead, they seemed to sink to the very level of the, very, of the pagan nations that they had replaced in the promised land. Instead of them rising above, they ended up sinking down to that level. God had brought them into the land and said, Remove the pagans, if you will, out of that land. I've given you this land for you. For you. And, and the whole point was, is that God had intended that they, as a people, cling to Him, commune with Him, and ultimately continue with Him. But that wasn't the case at all, was it? By the time we reach Judges 17, we're informed of something very important. Look in Judges 17, verse 6. This people who God had intended to be the apple of His eye, this people who God had intended to occupy the land and enjoy the blessings and the manifold uh, just glories of God. Instead, you find them. Idolaters. We find them sick with sin in rebellion against the very God who put them in the land to begin with. Notice in Judges 17, 6, it says, In those days... There was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's a problem. Now, the situation was so bad, so terrible, that it's restated again. This specific statement is restated at the end of the book of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25. It says again, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So what do we understand What do we take from this? Well, first of all, I want you to understand there is a king. There's a king. And that king is to be obeyed. His word is to be honored and followed. And when a man or a woman fails to obey the king's word, it is sin. It's sin. Sin is breaking God's word or breaking God's law. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Turn there if you would, please. 1 John, the little guy in the back there. One of three small Johns. Notice what it says there in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. It says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. See, it's a a real problem when God's people fail to recognize the authority of King Jesus. 
It's a real problem when we get to the place where we say, I'm king. I'll make my own decisions. I'll set my own course. I'll lower my own sail and go my own direction. I'll do things my way. When that happens, what we are essentially saying is, there is no king in the land. And we're doing what is right in our own eyes. That is nothing less than just bold-faced sin. Just sin. When we break the law of God, we are sinning. And no matter how big or how small the infraction is, it is still sin. We have this idea and we get this kind of mentality that little sins aren't that big a deal. The only problem is, is that if we define sin as breaking God's law, then it doesn't matter whether it's a big break or a little break. It's still a break making it sin. And you know, God doesn't see things quite the way we do, does he? He looks at the whole picture and he sees things from a different perspective. We're, we're big about growing up and telling little white lies. There's no such thing as a little white lie. It's either a lie or it's truth. Now listen, I know in the culture and the society in which we live, there's not much room for, for uh, I guess you would say, absolutes. Everybody wants to be free to express themselves and do as they please. Why? Because they want to believe somehow or buy into the idea there is no king in the land. But there is a king, and his name is King Jesus, and he is the creator of all the universe, and he created you, and he created me, and he has every right to tell us what he demands of us, what he wants from us, and what we should be doing on his behalf. And may I say, when we transgress his law, we have sin. But that's sin. Not only is sin breaking God's law, but sin is any unrighteousness. Any unrighteousness. Look, if you would, in 1 John again, we're already there, chapter 5, verse 17. In 1 John 5, 17, the Bible says, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. Now, we're not going to get into all of that, because just before that, there's a sin unto death. So, I'm not going to get into all that. But the fact is, is that all unrighteousness is sin, very simply. Webster's defines unrighteousness, I'm talking about the 1828 Webster, defines unrighteousness as injustice, a violation of the divine law or of the plain, of plain principles of justice and equity, wickedness. Now you'd say, well, that sounds very similar to the first one. It does, and it is similar, but there is a slight difference. Basically, the word that is rooted in this, the, the, the word that, that righteousness is rooted out of or from has to do with Quote, wrongdoing in general. Just general wrongdoing. Now, when we think about breaking God's laws, often we think about doing something wrong. But righteousness, in this case, or unrighteousness, is wrongdoing in general. So this would include our wrong attitudes. This would include acts, of course, and also the words that we speak that are no longer lining up with God's word. So it's not just what you do that's important or that is sinful. It's what you think and how you feel and what you say. All of those things in our lives are important because every last one of them is either right or wrong, making it sin or not. You don't have to do the wrong thing to sin against God. 
Because sin is not just simply breaking God's law. Sin is any unrighteousness. And that includes our thought life. And that includes the what we say. And so we have to understand that God has a standard by which we are to function and live. And it is outlined and shared in the Word of God for us. And when we deviate from that outline, whether it's in the way we think or the way we feel or the way we act or the things we say, it doesn't matter. It is sin and unrighteousness. And unrighteousness is sin. Not only is sin is breaking God's law, sin is any unrighteousness, but finally, sin is anything done apart from faith. Anything done apart from faith. And this is where it gets really tricky now. Think about how many things we do that are right. But how many things we do in our own strength. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 23, would you please? Take just a few moments in this section and see if we can't kind of nail something using an illustration from the Old Testament. Sin is anything done apart from faith. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. Because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If what you do, what I do is not of faith or as a result of faith, it's not faith in action, then it is sin. That sounds crazy. I get it. I know. But it's a reality. It's a biblical truth. In the book of Numbers, faith is seen in action. Israel has become discouraged and they speak against God. So what does the Lord do? He sends fiery serpents into their midst. Take your Bible, look at Numbers chapter 21, would you please? Numbers 21, verse 4. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. We're going to read an account in the Old Testament that shares a biblical truth that will be very helpful to us here. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It goes on to say, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to come past the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake unto God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That's an interesting statement. I think that's something right there. I mean, they've been delivered out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. God has done some mighty things in their lives. However, they're still upset with Moses. Why in the world would you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? By the way, can I just tell you that if you're a child of God today, once you cross the Red Sea, a picture of your salvation, it's not going to always be easy. Don't expect God to just fix every one of your problems. Every one of the situations that you created over a lifetime. Don't expect God to just take trouble out of your life. Trouble is always going to be a part of your life. It's just life. 
It's not that God's mad at you. It's not that God's upset with you. By the way, can I ask you, how hard did you try to protect your children? How hard did you try to keep them safe and keep them, keep, give them everything that they absolutely needed? And in some cases, maybe even what they desired. But there were a number of things you just downright would not, nor could you give them. Sometimes it didn't have the money. Sometimes it just wasn't in their best interest. There were things that you did not give them that they wanted because it just wasn't going to be profitable for them. May I say that God's going to allow things in your life because He wants you to grow into the kind of believer that you ought to be, not the kind of believer you think you should be? Do you realize that there's no way that we get stronger simply by having everything handed to us on a silver platter? I'm not saying that I enjoy difficult times in my life. As a matter of fact, there's many times I kind of wish they just didn't show up. But the fact is is that it is in many of those difficult times, those times when it seemed that the pressure cooker was really weighing heavy on my shoulders, that God did something miraculous in my life that changed me forever. And it's true in your life too. You would attest to that, I'm sure. He goes on to say, And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. See, what God, what you're giving us isn't good enough. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. I'm going to tell you what, you want to get on God's bad side? Be ungrateful. Go ahead, be unthankful. We're going to be doing some things as we head into our, our uh, revival in the end of March. And one of the things we're going to do for a couple of weeks is we're going to give everyone an opportunity to write out every single day one thing that you're thankful for. And throughout the day, continue to thank God for that one thing. Before the end of two weeks, you'll have 14 things that you are thankful for. Why? Because as we head into revival, there is no way that we can expect God to bless us in revival if we are not a grateful and thankful people. These people were ungrateful and therefore the Lord sent fiery serpents, verse verse 6, among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he, uh, may t- that, that he take away the serpents from us. Now again, I understand them wanting to take the serpents away. That's what I would want too. Wouldn't you? But now notice how this is handled. <laughs> By God at least. Moses, of course, he prays for the people. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And so Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, God didn't take the serpents away. Wow, that's, that's, that's very important for us to realize and understand. God doesn't always remove that thing which we feel needs to go the most. Sometimes He just gives us a way to deal with it. And in this case, He's giving a a means by which to address it and deal with it. And He says, Moses, all I want you to take one of those fiery serpents, mold it, make it into a brass, put it up on a pole and stick it up there. And every time somebody gets bit, every time somebody is is smitten by that, that snake, I want them to look to that brass serpent. 
in the New Testament, this important bit of history that we've just learned is interpreted for us by none other than Jesus himself. He's explaining to his hearers how they can be saved at this point in the New Testament. He tells them that you're saved by believing. By believing. Then to make that clear, he reminds them of this particular account over in the, in, in, in the book of Numbers. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, look at what Jesus says. Notice again, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And we're going to get to this point. We're going to get to this truth here. We've got to hurry up. But notice what he's going to say. What's going to transpire and take place here. Again, this time, Jesus is speaking. He's trying to help people find him or get saved, if you will. And so as a result of that, he's reminding them now of this account of the serpent smiting, or, or not smiting, but biting the Israelites and the Israelites having to look up to the serpent. Notice in John three fourteen and 15, and As Moses, Jesus said, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That brazen servant represented Jesus Christ. And now we have here Jesus telling him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How would he be lifted up ultimately? On a cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what we have here then, is we have an important discovery here. What we learn is that looking on the Old Testament serpent is identified with believing on the New Testament Christ. So when they looked up at that serpent in the Old Testament, it was a parallel to us looking up to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So what are we saying then? We're saying that look and believe are synonymous terms. Making looking and the believing the same thing. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting to me. Now, I'm going to try to explain it, but while Israel looked with their external eyes, they saw with these eyes that they had been given. Believing is done with our heart, is it not? So the idea or truth is found throughout the Bible. We see this truth. That we have to look to Jesus with our heart. We have to gaze upon Him in the heavenlies. we got to look to Jesus Christ to be saved. Even as they had to look to the serpent. And the, 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 the neat thing about this is that to look then is to believe. To look is to believe. It's tied together here through the two passages. We see even in the book of Psalm, chapter 34, verse 5, they looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. Psalm 123, verses 1 through 2, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. The man that's talking here in the book of Psalms, in this particular passage, I mean, he is looking for the mercy of God. And therefore, he looks straight at God. He looks straight at God, the God of mercy, and says, I will not stop looking. I will not stop gazing until I get the mercy that I want from you. It's important to note also that the Lord himself looked up at God. Look in Matthew chapter 14, verse 19. 
Christ Himself did this. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 19, we read, And He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And He took the five loaves and the two fishes, the feeding of the 5,000 here, and looking up to heaven, looking up to heaven, He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to His disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Do you realize that the very work that Jesus accomplished in this world in which we live was partly due to the fact that He always kept His eyes upon the Father? Do you realize, yeah, the Holy Spirit of God lived in Him. I get it. He he had the power of the Holy Ghost. But He was always looking up to the Father. He was always trusting God. He was doing the will of the Father all the time. In John chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, the Bible says, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For what things soever He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth Him all things that Himself doeth. And He will shew Him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Now turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. What we find then is that looking is believing. Even as in the Old Testament, when they were bit by those serpents, that brazen serpent that was raised on that pole, they need only look and live. You and I in our lives today, we're to look to Jesus Christ. And in looking, we are saying, I believe. Now watch this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is down, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. See, the passage sums up the believer's life of faith, really. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. Sin is anything done apart from faith. So what does that mean? That means then that unless you are looking to Him in every aspect of your life, in everything that you do and say, if we're not gazing upon the Lord every morning we wake up and through the afternoon hours and in the evening hours, if we're not looking up, then we are not living by faith. And if we're not living by faith, it's sin. Well, that's an amazing thought. How much do we do without looking to Him? How many things do we embrace and how many things do we posture ourselves for and go forward with without even once recognizing or even caring what God Himself thinks about it? How often do we go and do without ever asking or praying or seeking His face? We don't look up. We simply look ahead. We wonder why we're not being blessed. 
Because unless we are gazing, unless we are looking to Him, we don't really believe. It's not a faith. Because to look is to believe. And by the way, it's not a one-done act. You don't just look up to the cross for salvation and say, Well, I look to the Lord. I'm saved and on my way to heaven. Now I can look ahead. No, you've got to keep looking up. You've got to keep looking up. Now again, you can't walk around like this. That's the physical eye. But spiritually, your heart has to be focused upward, always looking and gazing up to the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Always seeking Him, realizing and recognizing, as we learn in John, that He is the vine, we are the branches, and without Him we can do nothing. And when we look to Him, it's saying, I believe. And I'm looking to you and trusting you. I need you and I can't do it without you. That's faith in action. And anything that is not faith is what? Sin. It's sin. So what is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is any unrighteousness. Sin is anything done apart from faith. What about you tonight? What about me? I mean, how are we doing concerning sin tonight? How are we doing about that looking thing? I said, I believe in the Lord. I believe in God. But I never look to Him. I read my Bible every once in a while. I pray when it's convenient or when I'm in trouble. Problem hits, man, I'll pray. But I don't really take everything to God in prayer like the song says. Is that just a reflection of our unbelief then? And if it's not faith, it's sin. See, we don't take it seriously enough. We don't understand the ramification. When we fail to study the Word of God, we're saying, I don't care to look upon Him. Because He and the Word are synonymous. Did you get it? I mean, we've got to really think this through a little bit. We have to look to Him all the time. Because we can't do it without Him. It doesn't honor Him any other way than if we're looking to Him. Trusting Him. Depending on Him. Relying upon Him. Not just for salvation, but every day of our life. When we fail to look then that's unbelief. And that's sin. God help us to recognize the need to continually, constantly look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we deal with sin, and we're going to try to work on that, how do we deal with that thing? How do we address these issues of sin? We defined what sin is. Now, how do we deal with that? And we'll look at that over the next few weeks ahead. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you.